All right, let's go to the Bible. If you found Mark chapter 10, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark chapter 10, I'll call your attention to verse 35, and we'll read 10 verses down to verse 45. Grass with us in the flowers, fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him, and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said, we're able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Join me as we pray. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us, that you would bring healing and hope, restoration and peace. I pray that you would lift up weary hands that you would strengthen souls that want to give up. I pray the gospel would be nourishing, would be helpful for brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that it would be great news for those without Christ. That today would be a day of releasing from sin that binds, running into the freedom that's in Christ. I pray you help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1945, the Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer had already spent two years. In 1945, he had spent two years in a Nazi war prison. He was arrested by Hitler's Gestapo for preaching the gospel, but really for his anti-Nazi propaganda, they said. He was a Lutheran pastor there in Germany, which there are a lot of Lutheran pastors in Germany, but he led something called the Confessing Church. It was the the group of Lutherans, a small group that bound together by the gospel that would not 
bowed to the swastika, they clung to the cross. They believed Jesus was Lord. If you know anything about history, you know by the, by the spring of 1945, the, the war is coming to an end. Russians are coming across from the east. The Allies have crossed the Rhine. They're, they're coming into Berlin. And in April of 1945, as the Nazis felt themselves being squeezed by the Russians and the Americans coming through into Germany, the SS, Hitler's SS, began a wholesale extermination of all the war prisoners, including that Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As a 39-year-old man that came to his cell that day, he had spent two years in that cell writing all kinds of things. You can find poetry he wrote online. It's a great poem called, Who Am I? He wrote right before he's killed. I would commend it to you. April the 19th, 1945, they marched him out of his cell and unceremoniously marched him into the courtyard. And right there in the prison courtyard, courtyard they hung him by his neck till he died. April the 19th. Just three weeks later. Adolf Hitler would take a gun and kill his girlfriend, Eva Braun, and then put the gun to his own head, and the war would be over three weeks. While Bonhoeffer languished in that prison before he was killed near the end of the war, he wrote several things, and one of those that became famous is the Christian classic called The Cost of Discipleship. Now, you may not know the book, but you probably already know the most famous line in that book. Bonhoeffer wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. It's the cost of discipleship. It's a hard lesson to learn. It's a hard lesson for us as American Christians to learn. It's a hard lesson to learn even evidenced by the passage in front of us. The passage begins with the conversation, but before that, something is happening. So let's put it down into its context so you kind of know what's going on in Mark chapter 10. In the previous verses, verses 34 and 35, and you can look up the page if you like, Jesus has just now given them a detailed explanation of what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. What's going to be going on there? that Jesus will be handed over to the authorities, he will be condemned, he will be beaten, and he will be crucified, and on the third day he will rise again from the dead. Now you can imagine the silence that descended on the group when Jesus was telling them what's going to happen to him when they go to Jerusalem. And then two of the greatest disciples, that's what this story is, James and John, their brothers, those two disciples had the audacity to ask Jesus to put them in positions of power when he comes into his glory. And out of that conversation, out of that event, Jesus pauses on the road. We're going to read about it. And he teaches the disciples a lesson on the cost of discipleship that flies in the face of understood greatness. And my hope today 
is that your heart and your mind and your soul will be strengthened as you seek to be a disciple. Because true discipleship is truly glorious. True discipleship. Let's go back and look at true disciples. Let's go through it quickly. Join me there in verse 35. I just want to walk through the text and I'll come back and uh, make maybe some sermonic application. So let's just, we'll breeze through it so you have a good understanding of these 10 verses. I'll come back and make some application. Join me there in verse 35. James and John, you know them, the sons of Zebedee. They're called the sons of thunder. They got that name for a reason. James and John are part of the original inner group. James, John, Peter, and sometimes Andrew. James and John and Peter have been on the mountain of transfiguration. They are close to Jesus, and they come up to Jesus, and they ask him a question. First, they want a blank check. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. If you had a child, maybe say that. Mom, do you promise to give me what I'm getting ready to ask you? And if you're a mom with any sense, you're like, no, no, I'm not doing that. They want a blank check. It's a demand, really, in verse 25 or 35. It's a demand, and Jesus says to them, let's get to the bottom of it. What do you want? Just right there in verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? And they say the most audacious thing in verse 37. Grant us, I mean, in one point you kind of think, man, it's admirable that they actually do believe Jesus is going into Jerusalem. He's going to be the Messiah and going to be king. They really think that. They're going with him. But they've lost several times, three times, Jesus has told them, going there to die, that, that hasn't registered with them. And so they say, when you come into your glory, verse 37, would you make it so that one of us is on the right side, one of us, one of us is, we don't want to be king, we just want to be next to the power. It's audacious for them to do that for several reasons. We'll go through that, but they found a little time with Jesus by himself. Peter wasn't there. The other ten are gone. And they ask for this position of authority. And notice what Jesus says to them. Verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. I mean, just, it's just straight rebuke. Verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. And then he gives them a little taste. Are you able to drink the cup? I have a baptism to undergo. Not, not like what we do here. It's metaphorical language. The cup and a baptism to undergo. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And do you see the hubris right there in the text, verse 39? They say, as they thump their chest, yes, they don't call us the sons of thunder for nothing. <laughs> yes, we're able. We're able to do that. And Jesus said, yeah, you know what? You will. All Christians will at some point. We'll all taste a little bit of that cup and a little bit of that, that baptism in verse 39, Jesus tells them that. Verse 40, evidently, somehow or other, the other 10 find out they've got Jesus cornered. What are they talking about over there? And they get over there and see they're asking to have the positions of authority. Verse 40, or verse 41. And when the other 10 hear it, maybe Peter's leading this. When the other 10 hear it, they are indignant. They're starting to fight one another over who has the most influence. Who's going to have the most authority? So they break into this 12-man melee right there in front of Jesus, and Jesus swivels around. Verse 41, when Jesus heard it, verse 42, he called and said, you're acting like a bunch of pagans. That's verse 42. 
Jesus called them and said, you, you know that the rulers around us, the Gentiles, you know what they do. They lord it over one another. They have authority and they, they subject people. You know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles. They lord it over them. The great ones, they exercise authority. Verse 43, that's not how my kingdom runs. It won't be like that with y'all. You can just feel the 12, the shame, what they've, especially James and John, but even the 10, they're not any better. And then Jesus gives the lesson in verse 43 and following. Jesus gives the lesson, shall not be among you, but whoever would be great. Greatness is a good thing to aspire to. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Here's the kingdom ethic. Turned it upside down from the world. Verse 44. Here's the attitude. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The slave of all. In verse 45, he says, now look at me here. I want you to get, I'm, I've given you an example. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man, I came for one reason. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, like lording it over people, but to serve. And, most important verse in the entire passage, and to give his life for a ransom for many. See, true discipleship is truly glorious. Let's make some points out of it. Let's go back to it and see if we can't start slow and build and maybe learn some things about discipleship. I'll start with the first one. Number one, true discipleship rejects personal gain. True discipleship is not looking for personal gain. You see it right there in verse 35. James and John, they're asking for something. They got Jesus alone, and it's astounding what they ask. They want a blank check. Will you give us, it's almost a demand, you give us whatever we want. You know, when I read it, I'm stunned by several things when I read it. When you read this, uh, I'm, I'm stunned by the unspiritual nature of the disciples. They've been with Jesus all this time. I mean, we're coming down to weeks now before Jesus is going to be crucified. They've been with him a long time. They have heard him give three different occasions. On three different occasions, he's told them, going to Jerusalem to die. They just came off of that. I'm stunned by their worldliness. I'm stunned by their, um, their spiritual awareness their, or their situational awareness. I, I mean, Jesus has just given them a detailed account of I'm going to be killed and it goes through the way he's going to be killed verse 33 and 34 and then verse 35 they say hey can we have some authority it's completely inappropriate it's like wearing a bathing suit to a funeral you just wouldn't do it, it doesn't fit so they say something just, I mean just read the room guys you can't see what's going on here I'm stunned by their lack of, of awareness I'm stunned by their own self grandeur James and John sons of thunder that they would think enough of themselves that us too, we need to be sitting positions of authority. This feels like a demand. I, this feels manipulative. You know, when Matthew tells it, if you find the parallel story over in Matthew, it's actually not the two boys, James and John, it's their mom. Their mom has the ambition. They come to Jesus and she says, hey, would you make my two sons, put them on thrones next door to you? 
So you take all of what you know about the Bible in the New Testament, James and John, their mom's name is Salome. Salome is actually a sister to Mary, the mother of Jesus. So what you have here is, is Jesus' aunt coming and putting a little family pressure on Jesus. You need to put your cousins right there beside you. Feels, if, this feels manipulative. You know, I'm, I'm astounded by the fact that uh, James and John are friends with Peter. They're always with Jesus. The three of them on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter has been the recognized leader. While Pe- I'm, I'm, I'm astounded at their betrayal of Peter. When you read this, you, I mean, it's not a pretty picture of those two disciples. It's what makes us believe it's true. One of the things about the Bible is it's brutally honest about the heroes in the Bible. And these guys, James and John, they are seeking personal gain here. This reminds me of being a Christian in a body of Christ in a church and this press for position. Press for title. Press for how you will be seen. Press for where you sit. Press for being an influencer in the church. What you have here with James, this is straight what about me-ism. And it's unbecoming of a, of a disciple. Why? Because the cross, that's where we're headed. The cross is where we're headed. A couple of diagnostic questions that might help you think through your own approach to discipleship. One would be, are, are you easily offended? Are you? Does it take much to set you? Are you easily offended? If so, there's a chip on your shoulder and it's called pride. Or here's another one. Uh, do you think your way is always the right way? If so, if you think everybody else... That your way is the right way. Roll that around. Let's go to the second point. Uh, I need to pick up the pace. I want to get through this. Here's number two. You ready? About true discipleship. Number two, true discipleship fights pride. True discipleship fights pride. Pride is natural. True discipleship fights it. We are naturally prone to being prideful. Discipleship fights against that. You find it in verse 38. And in verse 38, after James and John have asked for this position, Jesus rebukes them. And as he rebukes them, he will then use two metaphors. Let's join there in verse 38. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. It's a great rebuke. Then there, here, here come the metaphors. Yeah, ask the question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That's one metaphor. Are you able to be baptized in the baptism with which I will be baptized? So we, we're familiar with those two metaphors. The first one, the cup, in the Old Testament is oftentimes used, the wrath of God is in a cup, and the sinning people would drink it down to its dregs. For those of us that know, know the New Testament, <clears throat> it resonates. We know that uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked the Father, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He uses that word baptism as a metaphor. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So, so the cup is the, the condemnation of God. All the sins of every sinner ever be saved, Jesus drinks the cup. We know that. Garden of Gethsemane. The, the baptism, that is the, the 
the flooding fury of the wrath of God, that is Jesus drowning in the ocean of God's judgment. It's what we call the passion of the Christ. And Jesus says, are you able to do that? And look at the hubris in verse 39, the hubris. Yes, we're able. Strong. This is, this is bring it. This is we can handle it. This is them overestimating their own ability and underestimating God's grace. This is, you know why God sometimes takes us through such pain and hurting? Because we overestimate our ability, we underestimate our need for God. And there's nothing like being broke that makes you see your need. There's nothing like having a really hard time and being stripped. I mean, these two men, verse 39, Jesus tells them, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna taste some of it. Not all of it, because Jesus takes all the wrath, but you'll get it, as, as all Christian people do, in, in order to be in fellowship with Christ, we also in fellowship in his sufferings. I mean, those two guys, uh, James and John, it's interesting, you can put them as bookends uh, of the apostles. James, James will be the first apostle who will die. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Herod Agrippa will kill him by the sword. He'll die instantly. That's his way of suffering. Uh, he'll be the first one to die. <clears throat> you read the book of Reve Revelation. John, his brother, lives longer than anybody, outlives all of his friends. They're gone. He'll suffer on the island of Patmos. Yeah, those two guys, they'll taste it. They'll taste it. You'll get to taste it. Jesus tells the disciples there, those two men, look, you've asked for something that can't be given. The Father, verse 40, what a great verse just to ponder Jesus said, the, the positions you're asking about, on my right hand and left, they are actually there for those that have already been prepared. That's already, those are reserved seats. You can't have those seats. Isn't it something what Paul says, that you are, you are God's workmanship, you are created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand so you might walk in them. It's a good reminder of God's plan. Well, so the, these two guys, James and John, they're doing terribly. They're prideful. They're asking for something. We get to verse 41, and the other 10 didn't do any better. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 41, when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and there becomes a 12-man melee. They are fighting against one another. Who has the best idea? Who has the right to sit there? Who is the most popular? Who has the authority? Who has the influence? It's division. 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 There, there are times for, for a church fight and a split. There are times, I think, if a church goes off the rails doctrinally, if it's abandoned, that which we know to be biblically right and centered on the gospel. But not when it's an opinion. These guys are fighting. There's jealousy. There's, they're debating on who's right. How do we avoid that? I would just offer up a couple of ways. <clears throat> one, one is we pray. Here's what I would say. We, we need to pray for humility. Pray for humility. Ask God to give you humility. It sounds like a dangerous prayer. Because oftentimes to get humility, you've got to be humbled. And there's no fun in that. But, but it's going to keep you from being the enemy of God. God is opposed to the proud, so ask God to help you. 
to be humble, give you some humility. He'll gently, God is a good father, he'll gently lay that across your heart. Pray for humility. The second thing is, learn what grace is. So the, the depth of, study the depth of grace. So what, what you do is you think about your own filthy sinfulness, how you are a filthy sinner that God should have sent to hell. You understand that, and then, then he didn't, and that's grace. That he would love someone like you is grace. So when you think about that deeply, that helps with humility in your heart. Another thing that's, that's helpful is to start thanking him. There are 10,000 things that you could name right this moment that you ought to be thankful for that you haven't been. Thank, thank God for all. And when you start seeing that all of this has come by God's goodness from his hand, that also starts to build humility in your heart. True discipleship fights pride. Let me give you a third one. We'll go a little faster. I don't know how else to say this, so forgive me that it's not really said that well. Number three, true discipleship does not use a business model. Doesn't use a business model. Doesn't look like the world. You see, Jesus, what he says, verse 42, and here comes the lesson. He starts to teach the lesson in verse 42 and 43. Look what he says. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And the great ones there, they exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. In other words, we don't live like the pagans. We don't treat each other like the pagans. We're not running a military here. Discipleship's different. You're not in the business world. We're not dependent on positional authority or worldly leadership. You're not living in a regime that says, okay, well, if the boss says something, it's got to be done. So often you start reading, maybe this is just church leaders I'm talking about, pastors, I don't know. Uh, but you read worldly books, good to great, and George Patton on leadership. You read that, you got to cuss a lot. Or the effective exact, all those might be really good things to read for, for common grace. But when it comes to how Christians interact with one another, Jesus says, that's not where we find our model. Jesus said, verse 43. Not so among you. You see, brothers and sisters, we, we, we are, we're a family. We're a body of believers. We are bound together by the blood of Christ. We are an assembly. Not like, not like the pagans. And he presses this model. What then, is the, what then is the model to What do we do? So the next few points. I'll give you three more. I'll be done. Here comes the model of what it looks like inside the church. Ready? Number four. <clears throat> Here it is. True discipleship actively, actively serves. Actively. Let me show you where I get that. Verse 43. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great. Greatness is a good thing to aspire to. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. It's, it's our word diaconus is where we get the word deacon. To, to serve, to, that, that word is literally to wait on tables, to do the menial labor. 
It's not like it is in the world. It's different, it's different with us. In the church, the influencer, the one, that, the one that is providing the most influence is not the one that is the prettiest or with the loudest leadership or with the most money. The great one the great ones in the church are the diaconists, the ones that are serving. They're actively doing something. They're actively doing the things that no one else sees, joyfully tackling the menial issues and problems and tasks in a church. Jesus says, that's the great. You want to be great in the body of Christ? That's how you do it. Standing at the door and greeting people, leading in discipleship, Finding a D group. Standing with the weak in heart. Here is the whole ethic, the whole ethic of the kingdom of God. Here is the complete opposite of, of understood greatness outside. Jesus says, that's not how we do it. Who's great here is the, nurse, is the nursery worker. It's the one that goes to the nursing home that nobody sees. It's, it's the adults that show up at intensity for the students to be there just, just to have a presence. It's, it's the offering up a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. Look, I, I think that <clears throat> aspiring for greatness is a really good thing as long as you understand greatness as Jesus has explained it. True discipleship, I actively serves. Let me give you another one. This one's harder. Maybe this was the hardest one for me. Number five. True discipleship has a selfless attitude. Selfless attitude. Let me show you where I get that. It's in verse, four, verse 44. You might want to ride to the, right on the other side of the page. Uh, I have an attitude problem. But you probably do. You probably do at some point. You probably do somewhere. I've had an attitude problem. Let me show you where I get that. Verse 44. <clears throat> Whoever would be first among you Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You ever thought or said, I ain't your slave? I'm not your slave. You may not have said it like that, but you thought it. And here's the attitude Jesus says, whoever's going to be, whoever's first, verse 44. It's the word doulos, it's the word slave. You, I mean, you have, you have a good grasp on the word slave. You know what it means. It's the hardest thing. And it means just what you think it means. We, we are naturally prone to, what about me, is the attitude. What about me? What about me? And Jesus says, you want to be first, you want to be great in the kingdom, here's the attitude to cultivate that you would be willing to be the slave of anyone. That's a tall order. I, I kept reading, I kept trying to find loopholes in this. Because we, our default is... We default into how do you feel? And Jesus says it's a selfless. The first in the kingdom is a selfless attitude. What did Paul write in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3? Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Jesus said it like this, verse 44. To be the slave of all. Better than no one. Willing to serve anyone. 
That is a sanctified, that's a, that's a remarkable attitudinal shift that we'll be working on until the Lord calls us home. And that brings us to Christ. Brings us to Christ in verse 45, my last point, number six. True discipleship looks to, to Christ. Verse 45, there's not a word wasted in this verse. Every phrase in verse 45 is important. This is the centerpiece of this entire passage. You just follow and we'll go along. We look to Christ. He is our model. He is our model. Jesus says, even the Son of Man. Here's the example. You want to have the ethic? One, one thing is to make sure you put your faith in what Christ has done for you on the cross, and then you look to Jesus as your model. How did he live? Not only that, he is also our Messiah. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. Even the Son of Man. That is the messianic title that he is our king. You see him as your ruler. Not just our Messiah, he is our righteousness. What did Jesus say there? Verse 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Here is a brief description of his incarnation. It's Christmas. Jesus becomes, God becomes man. He came and lived as the second Adam, the first Adam in Genesis Lost it for us. He and Eve sinned, and everyone else since then has. The second Adam is Jesus, and he comes not to be served, but to serve. And how did he do it? By living a perfect life. He's our righteousness. He is also our redeemer. Verse 45 says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to, look, look at it, look at the word, and to give his life as a ransom. For many. You understand the word ransom. Lutron is the Greek word. It's the price for release. Someone is kidnapped to get them back, you pay a ransom. So put yourself, you've been kidnapped by your own lust. Jesus pays the ransom. You are a slave to sin, locked up. Jesus pays the price. You are under the judgment of God. Jesus pays for your release. It's the only use of the word ransom. In all of the Gospels, Paul has the idea of it. He picks it up. Paul says in Romans 4 that he was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Isaiah points toward it in Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds were healed. Jesus says, I came as a ransom for many. For. Is that the word for in the Bible? The word for? It's a Greek word, ante. It, it means in the place of. Here's, here's the gospel. What should have happened to us happened to Jesus. It's the highlight of this passage. It's the heart of the gospel. Now, I'm going to close in a minute, and as I do, I too, if you are a believer here, you're a Christian, I'm going to explain the gospel, and you should preach it to yourself with joy. You walk out of here confident in the gospel. If you're not sure, when you hear me explain the gospel, I want you to listen. And when I get done, you ask God to save you. With your heads bowed this morning, I want you to join me in an attitude of prayer.
Let me talk through the gospel. <clears throat> Believers, you listen. Those of you not sure, you ask God to save you. The whole Bible teaches that God <clears throat> created us in his image. It's why we respect you. It's why you have dignity. You're created in the image of God. But the image of God in us has been disfigured. The whole Bible teaches that all of us are sinners. That sin is not just a mistake, mistake or wrong decision. It is, has made us foul before God. It's a crime against a holy God. God's holy and we are not. And therefore, God will not have fellowship with us. He did with Adam before sin. Sin came in and no more fellowship. But he's not just a judge. He's also very loving and kind and patient. God in his goodness has sent us Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. He comes as the second Adam. He's going to live like Adam should have, like we should. Jesus Christ on earth lived perfectly under the law of God and fulfilled all of that. It's very important because he earned righteousness as a human. And as a human, he goes to the cross and, and pays the price. He takes the judgment that humans deserve and gives us a righteousness earned as a human. So that when you put your faith in Jesus, now I want you to listen if you haven't. When you believe in Jesus, what happens is he takes all, all of it, all of your sin, every bit, all of it, all of the guilt, every bit, all of it away, and covers you in the purest, cleanest garment, the righteousness that he earned, so that you are dependent not on what you do, but what Christ has done. He paid for your sin and gives you righteousness. If you believe that, if you believe that, you can walk out with joy today and confidence. If you want to believe that, today when we sing, you pray and ask God. And afterwards, in the lobby, we need to talk about what that means so you can start growing as a Christian. You can come forward if you want. Our pastors are here. Or you can wait and, and have a conversation with a pastor out in the lobby after church. I want you to know that being a true disciple is truly glorious. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us, that you would be close, that by your Spirit you would call people even today. Thank you for the reminder of grace. Thank you for the reminder of discipleship. Find us faithful. Lord, thank you for this church, and we pray that you find us faithful and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.